the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Yes, it is. And happy Friday, October 15th, 2021. 602-508-0960 is the number. Totally open lines Friday. This show is yours today. Give us a call with anything on your mind. The education news is what I wanted to start with. It's not good. We just learned... Nearly 30% of our 8th graders can't read, and over 30% of our 8th graders can't do basic math. These are the worst achievement levels since Nixon was president, early 70s. It strikes me, though, that we have so many disparate understandings of goals and ethics in education that the disparity, that's too soft, the disaster comes from a deliberate disrupting of our common truths, understandings, and culture. And by that I mean Western civilization. You've heard me discuss the crisis of the West, the notion that we no longer believe our creeds anymore, but it's something else entirely when we don't know the creeds or what their foundations are or were. It's one thing to know them and dispense with them, another thing altogether not to know them or Another thing altogether, not to know the truth when you see it. This is part of George Orwell's memory hole as well. Every book rewritten, every picture repainted, every statue and street building renamed, every date altered, and the process continuing day by day, minute by minute. History stopping, nothing exists except an endless present in which the party is always right. Milan Kundera, you've heard me on him before also writer who is someone who saw his country disappear, knew what it meant to have a culture rewrite its education so that new education could be written, so that the party could have control rather than the individual. History stopped. History stopped. And it is all the party line. At least it was stopped when Western civilization was put on the chopping block. And don't forget, elsewhere in 1984, Orwell predicts Shakespeare specifically, and others like Chaucer and Milton, he mentions, will be totally gone, he writes, by 2050, or perhaps a little sooner. Quote, close quote. Keep in mind one thing as I continue on this. Revolutions never come from the numb and the dumb. This is not a small point as you watch the continuing lock grip of the teachers' unions on public education and the shutting up and down of parents who do know better. There has been a big push accelerating at hyper speed of late over the past 25 years or so that there should be a different expectations in education for people of different backgrounds, races, ethnicities, and B, to force or reward the right answer and dismiss the wrong ones across 
all racial lines is the definition of inequity. And then there's the big C, critical race theory, that it was a cultural crime or something like that to force people in minority populations, people of color, to understand, know, never mind, revere the West. Read Malcolm X. That's where that started in the modern age. Not Harvard Law, though it picked up on it in the 1970s and 1980s. The work of our schools until recently, along with CRT and BLM curricula, that took to overturning and upsetting what was called white history and white math has been going on for a long time. And it's a shame. And yet there's no real such thing. It's also a fiction. Ethics, philosophy, history, if you're dealing with facts and truth rather than your truth and your facts, along with math and science, should be colorblind, are colorblind, and have nothing to do with a person's skin color, religion, gender, or really anything else. As Harry Jaffa put it, providing a so-called white education must mean teaching something like white mathematics or white economics or white biology or white physics or, for that matter, white political science. All of it unheard of until lately. Is there anything in Plato's Republic that indicates it's white justice that Socrates was seeking to define or discover? Or anything in the ethics of Aristotle to indicate that it was white happiness that he sought? as the summum bonum? Was there anything in Locke's second treatise of civil government or in the Declaration of Independence, for that matter, to indicate that taxation without representation was unjust only to white people? Was there anything in Locke's letter on toleration or in the Virginia statute for religious freedom to indicate that it was only in the case of white human beings that our civil rights have no dependence on our religious opinions any more than on our opinions in physics or geometry? You can ask these questions, but the best you can hope for is to be ignored. More likely, you will be dismissed. Or if you have taken it up with your school board, perhaps you might face the FBI. The philosophers have hitherto interpreted the world, Karl Marx wrote. The point, however, is to change it. Debate like religion in the Soviet Union is an opiate. You don't defeat your opponent's arguments by argument, but now by trampling on your opponents and by treating them with contempt or setting the long arm of the law after them. Coercion of the law. That's what you do if you're on the left. In any event, this is why the West matters. It is the culture and philosophy that gave us religious and civil liberties, among other things. One classically trained scholar on the left gets it, but he's pretty much all alone. And he's a little older, Cornell West. He wrote, Upon learning to read while enslaved, Frederick Douglass began his great journey of emancipation, as such journeys always begin, in the mind. Defying unjust laws, he read in secret, empowered by the wisdom of contemporaries and classics alike to think as a free man. Douglass risked mockery and abuse and beatings and even death to study the likes of Socrates, Cicero, Cato. Long after Douglass's encounters with these ancient thinkers, the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. would be similarly 
galvanized by his study of the classics as a young seminarian. He mentioned Socrates three times in his famous 1963 letter from Birmingham jail. Professor West is right. Frederick Douglass, who became more literate and a beautiful writer, more beautiful than the likes of the new author's children are given today, Douglass taught himself to read and think by spending 50 cents on something called the Columbian Orator when he was 12. In that orator, Douglass was exposed to the speeches of Washington and Socrates and Cicero and how to speak diction. Not a bad education, that. And, of course, Martin Luther King, named after one of the great men of the Western religious traditions, isn't he? He wrote this, quote, Not until 1948, when I entered Crozier Theological Seminary in Pennsylvania, did I begin a serious intellectual quest for a method to eliminate social evil. I turned to a serious study of the social and ethical theories of the great philosophers, from Plato and Aristotle down to Rousseau, Hobbes, Bentham, Mill, and Locke. All of these masters stimulated my thinking, such as it was, and while finding things to question in each of them, I nevertheless learned a great deal of their study. Yep, that's where you go to learn about social justice, all right. Once upon a time when words like justice mattered, and we agreed on those words because of a common understanding and of a common culture, of course, Bill Bennett put it this way about King. He said, King studied Western philosophy to know the answers to certain questions like what is justice? What should be loved? What deserves to be defended? What can I know? What should I do? What is man? As a result of the way in which King answered those questions out of and through the Western canon, Jim Crow was destroyed and American history was transformed. I have no objection in case anyone is interested students studying cultures that are not Western. I think that's fine, but they should not be denied access to the best and the greatest philosophical tradition in the world, the one that has transformed society around the world, the one that is the intellectual and moral and political currency, not only of the world that developed in the West, but for all people. And students, black or white or anything, would all be better to imitate what Martin Luther King did rather than, and Frederick Douglass, rather than this trend coming out of some curriculums and school boards and teaching expertise. But now we deprive these children this exposure to education because of the color of the skin on the men who wrote and taught us about justice and love and natural law and math. The new trend is to detract math. Make the more gifted like the less. One popular workbook on this very issue I was looking at today has this as the very first words in its introduction. Quote, this workbook provides teachers, this is a math workbook for teachers. This workbook provides teachers an opportunity to examine their actions, beliefs, and values around teaching mathematics. The framework for deconstructing racism in mathematics offers essential characteristics of anti-racist math educators and critical approaches to dismantling white supremacy in math classrooms by making visible the toxic characteristics of white supremacy culture with respect to math. How about teaching math? Maybe if we just taught math instead of that word salad, where teachers should rather examine their actions and beliefs and values around teaching math. Maybe we wouldn't have over 31% of our 8th graders not able to do basic math. I'm going to pick up on this theme 
when we come back. Maybe this is a good day. We can call it educa- a good day for a topic. We'll call it Education Day. Here's an interesting question. I have a good question for you all. I want to get through the rest of my thoughts on this before I give you the question. Stay tuned, and we'll find, um, we'll find something interesting to give the, uh, the winner of this question I'm going to ask in a little bit. I'm Seth Liebson, 602-508-0960. Stay with me as I talk a little bit more about education. Much in the news, not for the right reasons. I was talking about these uh, disastrous new scores for eighth graders in reading and math that uh, came out this week. And it dawns on me that if you were the grand dragon of the KKK and wanted to keep minorities down in America, the best thing to do is to keep the best of our tradition, intellectual, moral, literary, numerary, numeracy from them. Keep it from them. Instead, make believe that they should become experts in things obscure rather than experts in the society which they are going to live. The funny thing is, if you talk to minority children in America and ask them what they want to be, and you talk to white children in America and ask them what they want to be, they'll tell you the same thing. These are our children. They are American children. They are entitled to the best we have to offer, inculcating any culture that gets us to the best and the truth and the right answers and to success. We should give all of our children the best we have to offer. And by the way, we are the only culture that inculcates and adopts so openly the wisdom from other cultures. But back to the West for a moment and Cornell West as well. Cornell West wrote, In our culture's conception, the crimes of the West have become so central that it's hard to keep track of the best of it. We must be vigilant and draw the distinction between Western civilization and philosophy on the one hand and Western crimes on the other. The crimes spring from certain philosophies and certain aspects of our and other civilizations, not all of them. This might be a good time or place to remind what I constantly try to remind of. Not all of this country had slavery either. Indeed, the majority of it did not. And those fighting to defend slavery did lose to the majority that was against it. The Western canon is, more than anything, a conversation among great thinkers over generations that grows richer the more we add our own voices and the excellence of smart voices. We should never cancel voices because this is not an ordinary discussion. But the Western canon is an extended dialogue among the creme de la creme of our civilization about the most important of questions. It's about asking what kind of creatures we are, no matter what context we find ourselves in. It's about living more intensely, more critically, more compassionately. It's about learning to attend to the things that matter and turning our attention away from what is not anything more than superficial. The removal of the classics is a sign that we as a culture have embraced from the youngest age utilitarian schooling at the expense of soul-forming education, except we're now even removing utilitarian schooling from the mix by ruining math. 
we need to just be able to stand up and say it. the tradition you were born into, the West, has a canon, and it's morally great. Now go tell the rest of the movement that wants to scrub it, indeed that openly declares it aims to disrupt the family tradition, the Western family tradition, which is the heart and soul of all societal formation from Aristotle and the Bible to modern times. Bill Bennett put it this way, we are a part and product of Western civilization, that our society was founded upon such principles as justice and liberty and the consent of the governed and equality under the law is the result of ideas descended directly from the great epochs of Western civilization, Enlightenment England and France, Renaissance Florence, and Periclean Athens. These ideas, so revolutionary in their times, yet so taken for granted now, was the glue that bound us together as a pluralistic nation. The fact that we as Americans, whether black or white or Asian or Hispanic, rich or poor, share these beliefs aligns us with other cultures of the Western tradition. It is not ethnocentric or chauvinistic to acknowledge this. No student citizen of our civilization should be denied access to the best that tradition has to offer. I wish more would get this. If they did, we'd have more Frederick Douglasses and more Martin Luther Kings We'd have better achievement. We'd have a better country. In short, you can upend the entire project of centuries of wisdom and beauty, dismissing it as the essence of racism and vulgarity. But then again, then again, you will end up with Next, the next report from the nation's report card, the next issuing of the nation's report card, lamenting our fall since 1971 to no longer lamenting the fall, just understanding that the new baseline and the new normal will now be a third of our students not able to read in the eighth grade and more than a third not able to do math. And then in a few years, we'll realize it's a 50-50 proposition. And you will have a nation of undereducated, numb, and dumb. If you think, if you think that the left wants children to think critically, to engage in the Socratic method, to learn right and wrong answers irrespective of gender or ethnicity or anything else, you are wrong. You cannot control an independent thinker. And I think it's actually a crime. I think it's actually a crime we are, we are, we are inflicting on a generation that already the majority of which gets an F in American history. How long does this project keep going? America, the project of America, how long does it keep going when our students know less and less every year as we spend more and more to teach them less and less?
I'll just say this is my uh, last thought on no longer just criticizing what the modern education system is doing, but reminding them, it, all of us, of what it is we used to expect of kids and what they, children and what they should know. And you tell me, those of you that have looked at the curriculum in your students' classes, if we're anywhere close to this or if this would be better. Reading what perhaps my father read and what I read as students, interesting, the generations divided between my father's age and mine, and yet we read and were taught these same things in school. Call of the Wild, Treasure Island, Swiss Family Robinson, Huckleberry Finn. If we remove this kind of content from our coursework, we take a v- take away the very things that make students love to be students and that lead to the improvement of skills. Or as Diane Ravitch once put it or asked, who has ever heard of a child staying up at night reading just a very basic reader? What American education is about right now is mostly technique. Very little tradition. But technique without tradition is, of course, empty. So we're back to Orwell saying that it's the first duty of the intelligent to restate the obvious, starting with the first target of the CRT activists and the BLM movement curricula. Former Education Secretary Bill Bennett put it this way, it's important for children to know and be taught what justice is and what courage is. It's important for children to be taught to know what is noble and what is base. It's important for children to know what deserves to be defended and what deserves to be loved. It's important to know the difference between ambition and greed, between loyalty and servitude, between liberty and license, and more. Every student should know how mountains are made and that for every action there is an equal and opposite reaction. They should know who said the state is me and who said I have a dream. They should know about subjects and predicates and isosceles triangles and ellipses. They should know where the Amazon flows and what the First Amendment means. They should know about the Donner Party and slavery and shy-like Hercules and Abigail Adams. They should know where Ethiopia is and why there was a Berlin Wall. They should know a little of how a poem works, how a plant works, and what it means to say if wishes were horses, beggars would ride. They should know the place of the Milky Way and DNA in the unfolding of the universe. They should know something about the Constitutional Convention of 1787 and about the conventions of good behavior. They should know a little of what the Sistine Chapel looks like and what great music sounds like. Our students should know our nation's ideals and aspirations, liberty and equality, limited government, the betterment of the human condition, and the truths that underlie our society. And though they may be self-evident, they are not spontaneously understood by the young. You have to teach them. Our students should know these ideals, and they should know that a large part of the world thinks and acts according to other beliefs. And then we should remark on what those parts of the world 
have succeeded in doing and how they treat their citizens as compared to our country. These are the things we should want all our students to know. We should not hold some students to lesser goals, pushing them into educational backwaters while everyone else is advancing upstream. That's what good schools should be doing. Not this nonsense like this workbook, a pathway to equitable math instruction. I'll read you the intro again for teachers. This workbook provides teachers an opportunity to examine their actions, beliefs, and values around teaching mathematics. So it's about the teachers coming to terms with their psychological comfort level in teaching mathematics. Then the writes, the framework for deconstructing racism in mathematics offers essential characteristics of anti-racist math educators and critical approaches to dismantling white supremacy and math, blah, 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 blah. Reminds me of something I think it was Lisa Graham Keegan once said. I think, sir, wasn't, could have been or should have been, <laughs> or it's still smart. In other countries, they teach math. The reason our scores are so bad is we teach how we feel about math. 602-508-0960. Happy Friday. Open line Friday. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show, 602-508-0960. On this education issue, I'd love to hear from everyone. Everyone I have ever met can name at least one great teacher that meant the world to them. I'm not asking you necessarily to tell me about that teacher. I'm asking a different question of you all. And maybe it's something we could even put a book together on or a booklet or an essay. But what is the best thing or the most memorable thing that best teacher of yours taught you? What is it they taught you that was so important? What is it that the best teacher you ever had taught you that is so important? By the way, my was it you or Rusty? One of you really liked that line, if wishes were horses, beggars would ride. So we looked up its origins. It's Scottish from an old, an old Scottish nursery rhyme. If wishes were horses, beggars would ride. If turnips were watches, I'd wear one by my side. If ifs and ands were pots and pans, there'd be no work for Tinker's hands. Speaking of Scottish, and speaking of going across the pond, listener and good friend Dexter apprised me of the situation in Great Britain where Sir David Amos, a member of parliament, conservative member of parliament, was knifed to death today. Did you see this story, Bill? Knifed 12 times. According to the Daily Mail, Sir David Amos was holding a constituency surgery when a knifeman ran into the church building and launched a frenzied attack. Constituency surgery, you may ask? What's that? That's a British thing. It's a meet and greet. It's open office hours. Great phrase. Maybe we should do them here. Counterterrorism police, the Daily Mail says, and MI5 were probing whether the suspect, who is a 25-year-old British Muslim of Somali descent, had links to extremists. 
You want to give me an over-under on that, Bill? We'll see. We'll see. We'll keep you posted. We'll keep you posted. Katie Pavlich writing on the education situation over at uh, Town Hall wanted, uh, wanted to bring out a quote by one of these brave moms. Perhaps you've, uh, perhaps you've seen her on TV or on Twitter or elsewhere. One of these brave moms in Loudoun County, Virginia, Northern Virginia, Asra Nomani. Um, she wrote, I am a Muslim woman. I'm a single mom. I'm an immigrant to this country. I have chased terrorists around the world, actual terrorists. And for you to dare to try to smear parents as domestic terrorists just reflects how tone-deaf school boards and school administrators have come about the pleas of parents on behalf of their children. We are not the enemy. We are parents who brought children into the world, and we take seriously the responsibility that for all that happens to our children. She wrote. I um, I don't know where this exactly goes or ends. This Merrick Garland memo and this movement to upend all education as we knew it, know it. My suspicion is, as these scores get worse and worse, reading, math, you name it, as these scores get worse and worse, I would suggest, I would guess that we will see more and more effort to say there's not always a right answer, or the right answer can be many things, as we're seeing in California now, with regard specifically to math. That's my guess. It kind of it kind of it kind of reminds me of an old Ted Koppel line. I think I use it in my commencement addresses. He used it in a commencement address to Stanford. Set for yourself high standards, and will, when you fail them, as you surely will, adjust your life and not the standards. We're going to be doing the opposite here. Is my prediction. We're not going to adjust the education system to better teach in the way that got us the scores that we used to have, we're going to adjust the standards downward, downward, such that maybe we won't even have a nation's report card anymore. It's technically known as the National Assessment of Education Progress, or NAEP. That's my first guess. My second guess is something that goes back to what a caller, I think it was yesterday, was bringing up. And that's the issue of more and more and more disparate and diverse systems of education, very few of which, the minority of which, will care about the original goal of our school system, which is teaching the three R's and C, citizenship, how to be a good citizen, the kind of thing you saw depicted and we've just talked about in The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, that great scene in the classroom, that beautiful scene in the classroom. That, that, that's my guess. And, and that's a pretty good way 
to start a civil war, a cultural civil war in this country, or to end one, or to end one. We're constantly being told we're the problem. The Osranomanis are the problem. The people raising their voices on this are the problem. Conservatives are the problem. And it should no longer be any surprise as to why. Cons- we, we, we are their problem. We are not the problem, but we are their problem. We happen to think they are the problem. The difficulty is most megaphones are in their hands. Most power is in their hands. And it seems to me the oddest of the odd things that after what? 20, 25, 30 years, maybe a little longer even, of teachers telling us we can't do the job of parenting, we can't do the jobs parents should do. This profession was about education. Now we're being asked to do things that should take place at the home. It's an interesting effort to go from that complaint, which I always understood to be legitimate, to what you hear now from the professional teaching organizations and national school boards associations and Democratic candidates for governors in the very state that is ground zero for this, parents should not have the primary role in the teaching of their students. It's a very odd thing to go from that complaint, which was legitimate, to taking all educational responsibility from the parents and giving it to the state. Pretty soon you get enough of these stories and people aren't going to say calling the other side's tactics and strategies Marxist is extreme. Pretty soon people will no longer be able to say it's extreme because it'll be common. Joe Biden uh, said, was it yesterday, the day before? I have the transcript. Don't have the day. Was it yesterday? He said, I want to thank my supply chain disruption tax task force, which we set up in June, led by Secretaries Buttigieg, Raimondo, and Vilsack, and by my director of the National Economic Council, Brian Deese. And I want to thank them for their leadership. But yesterday, we learned that the Secretary of Transportation has been on paternity leave since mid-August. Paul Mirangoff asks, did Joe Biden even know this? If Buttigieg is leading, he's leading from home while trying to take care of two newborn babies. Paternity leave is a fine thing, and maybe more than the usual amount of it is beneficial when the couple in question doesn't include a woman. But I can't imagine a serious public official taking two months of paternity leave and counting, reportedly, as Buttigieg says he plans plans to stay out just a while longer, and doing so when you've been assigned to deal with a major domestic crisis. Major domestic crisis. Is there no supply chain crisis? Is there no transportation crisis? Why did... Why was Joe Biden talking about what's off the ports and deliveries of L.A.?
no one really believes that if Buttigieg were not on paternity leave, the situation would be materially better. But that's not really the point here. It's Buttigieg's job to devote his undeflected attention to coping with this crisis, one would think. It's his duty to put the nation's interests ahead of his personal ones, isn't it? The course of the war in Afghanistan very likely would have been the same if Defense Secretary Mattis had taken a few months off in 2017. It might be the case that the financial crisis of 2008 would have played out the same way if Treasury Secretary Paulson had been on leave in the midst of it. But it's unthinkable that either cabinet member would have stayed home for weeks for any reason short of debilitating illness their own. For they were serious and dedicated men. Pete Buttigieg is something else. It reminds me of that NASA video from Kamala Harris with the child actors. That was all done the week we were exiting, being defeated by Afghanistan. Good use of her time. Would things have been different? No. But the idea that the administration was singularly focused on that, including the vice president? Nonsense. Nonsense. She was being weird with child actors talking about space. Give space to Bezos, for gosh sakes. No, I don't mean that. I don't. But don't give it to Kamala. Don't give anything to Kamala. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.